Hi there, and welcome to the Wayback Music Machine podcast, the show that takes a lighthearted look at the week that was in rock and roll history. And Aaron, welcome back from Liverpool. You had a wonderful trip by the sounds of things. Oh, I had a great time. Thanks. It's good to be back. You know what? As good a time as I had and as life-changing as it was, I miss talking with you. So this is good to be back doing this. Oh, it's absolutely great to be back uh, doing this, and I miss talking with you as well. And guess what? This is our 65th go-around. Can you believe that? No, I can't. It's just, it, it's just. I keep looking at the numbers and thinking, that can't be right, but it sure enough is, so yeah. Now, before we get started on the road trip, I'd like to do a couple of shout-outs, if that's okay. Because we've Absolutely. got some fans of the show who knew you were going to Liverpool. I'm going to mention one, and you can mention the other one, who was actually a tour guide of yours. Uh, but... I want to give a shout out to Ellie, uh, and you know who you are. Ellie, do you remember that, Aaron, when I sent you the wonderful messages that she sent to us? She uh, lives in Manchester, and as soon as she found out you were going to Liverpool, she sent me these fantastic messages uh, asking me to pass them on to you about all the things to do in Liverpool and where to go. And so, Ellie, that that blew us away, I have to be honest, you know, because this is a small show, and it's great to know that there are people out there who are listening. And we also loved your message about how our show helped you when you came to the States and fulfilled a lifelong dream of coming to the States and checking out some of the rock and roll venues that we talk about on the show. And you said you brought the show with you when you were traveling in the States. So that meant a tremendous amount. Yeah. I can't put into words how much that touched me. And the fact that she actually sent all those wonderful suggestions yet. So thank you very much. It's really, you're right, Tony. It, it, it blew me away. So absolutely. And I think we need to give a shout out to Paul, Paul Dean, who was a tour guide part, like amazing. Paul knows Liverpool, like the back of his hand and he's generous to a fault. He gave us his time and, uh, you know, I, I said to him, I was looking for records in some record stores because I want to finish my Beatles singles collection. And he just said, I have extras. Here you go. Like, just amazing, amazing human being, uh, a good friend. And it's so good to meet him in person. So, Paul, thank you for your time and your wonderful gifts and your generosity and everything. And you know what? It's amazing, isn't it, that uh, these are people who check out our show and who who just went above and beyond for us and and uh, thanks so much folks both of you ellie and paul we really appreciate it now what do you say you know when i was planning the chart remember yesterday when i was messaging you and i said oh my god aaron we have to do another <laughs> day in the life episode because august 22nd a whole bunch of stuff was happening yeah it's it's another i read the news today oh boy yeah you know what i mean yeah for sure so what do you say we focus on august 22nd and uh we might as well start chronologically and go back to 1956 and chat a little bit about mr presley don't you think mr who now (laughs) (laughs) so let's head back we're going to go to hollywood for this one and uh, august 22nd 1956 and a big moment actually in the career of mr elvis aaron presley so we'll be right back So here we are, Hollywood, California, and Elvis, this is the first day of shooting on his first movie called Love Me Tender. And this was a Civil War 
drama, and Elvis played a character named Clint Reno, the youngest of four brothers. The original title for the movie was supposed to be the Reno Brothers, but of course it changed to Love Me Tender because after Elvis recorded that song, it just astounded everybody. And they said, we got to play on this. we got to capitalize on this. And they changed the uh, movie title to Love Me Tender. But this was Elvis's first foray into film, which it always surprised me that uh, he got into film so early because this was right when he was ascending in a big way in terms of his popularity. And and I must say, the song Love Me Tender was so different from his other hits up to that point. And it's such a bare song. Like, it's just, it's so sparse. Don't you, you know, it's it's amazing that it was a massive hit that it was, because I think only Elvis could carry that off. Well, it's true. It's an unlikely hit because the tune itself is based on a, an American folk song from the Civil War era, a, a song called Aura Lee. And... Mm-hmm. Um, da 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 right that tune is an yeah. old old tune and elvis pulled it off and turned it into well one of his bigger hits for sure and i, I agree with you it, it was amazing that he got it but he he what i read online is that he wanted to get into films very early like he he told his manager that he was he wanted to act in films he was a big fan of movies he used to he worked in the cinema and he would often watch James Dean, Marlon Brando, Tony Curtis, and, and those are the people he looked up to. I mean, these were the actors of the day. And uh, so it's not surprising he got into film, but it's surprising how early he got into film. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, from everything that I've read in the biographies I've read about Elvis, he took it very, very seriously. You know, he was, of course, very green as an actor, but was a student of the craft and really took it seriously. Always wanted to be a serious actor. Uh, unfortunately, he got typecast as the guy who sings a few songs in the movie. But uh, always wanted to be a serious actor. Was a big fan of people like James Dean and Marlon Brando. But yeah, really early. 1956, this was his first day of shooting. The only the only time he, was the, he played a dramatic role without singing was his last... Ironically, it was his last movie. It's a movie called Charo. It's a Western. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's too bad that he couldn't have done something earlier than that, because I think he would have shown uh, that he actually had decent dramatic chops, don't you think? Yeah. And I, I think it's funny that, um, not funny, but Love Me Tender is actually, he does show some drama. He does show some acting ability. And in Jailhouse Rock, his later films became a bit of um, cookie cutters, right? They were yeah, just very exactly. similar, you know. Now, here's the thing. Did you know that, you know, they always do test screenings, right? Fans were very upset. And I, I hope I'm not doing a, a spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping that a film came out in 1956. Most have seen it. But he dies in the film, and fans were upset. So he had to film an extra scene and record an extra verse to the title track um, to be played over at the credits at the end of the film. And his mother, she actually cried in the theater um, that when she saw Elvis die. And from that point on, he never died in any of his movies. Yeah, I think that almost became, I don't know if it was written down in his contracts or whether, was it a, was it a contractual thing or was it just a, an unwritten rule that no more Elvis dying? 
How can you imagine? Uh, point six. Elvis is not to die. That's right. Uh, I don't know if it was in the contracts, but it it certainly was. You know, even in Charo, where you think he's going to die, and he doesn't because he's Elvis, right? That's right. But um, yeah, I I I could. I'm, I'm shocked. Actually, his first movie that he died in it. It just surprised me. I remember the first time seeing it going, there's no way they're going to kill Elvis. Oh, they did. Yeah, well, they had to do a lot of uh, rewrites too, right? Because the the script for this movie was, was basically totally done. And then as soon as Elvis came on board, they had to do a lot of rewriting to take advantage of the fact that here was this burgeoning superstar, right? And uh, that this movie got a lot more eyeballs attracted to it as a result of Elvis being in there. In fact, didn't, wasn't it one of the biggest movies of the year that year? Yeah. And it came out in November and it still was one of the biggest films of the year. And if you think about it, it was the 23rd highest grossing film of 1956, but it came out in November, which means that's six weeks of box office. And it was, you know, and when it came out, it was at number two, the, it couldn't knock giant from number one, but that was, that was James Dean's swan song. Right. Mm-hmm. And there was no way, Anything was going to knock Giant off now, which is also, by the way, a great movie. But um, I, what do you? Which, okay, full disclosure. What do you think of Love Me Tender, the movie? I like it actually, um, but again, I I have a hard time being objective about this because <laughs> I like it because it's Elvis's first movie more than anything. What about you? I always liked it. I, first of all, I'm a sucker for westerns, and I consider this a western because it mm-hmm. takes place during the Civil War. Uh, it's got a good story, and you know, I, I'm I'm with you. It's hard for me to be objective, and I kept thinking about you when I was in Ireland and England because maybe not over here, but Elvis is massive over across the ocean, and the film was playing in a hundred thousand cinemas over there. Oh, and, really? Oh, yeah, everywhere you went was Elvis, Elvis, Elvis. And the radio was Elvis mad. You turn on the radio, RTE, BBC, whatever. And they were talking about Love Me Tender, actually, because they were showing it on uh, one of the channels over in Ireland. And and I thought, Tony should be here for this. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, you know, I'm also a Civil War buff, too. I find that whole period. uh, In fact, right now in my podcast listening, I'm listening to a huge series about the Civil War. I just find that whole era very interesting. So, yeah, I'm a fan. the photography that came out of that war is phenomenal. I mean, just the fact that it was the first war that was actually documented with photography and, and, and not the most pleasant scenes, but no. phenomenal to have them. Yeah. Now let's, uh, let's move on to a topic a little bit more pleasant than the civil war though. Um, you've got an interesting chart here. You have the top five most played albums in the U S. So what do you mean by most played for, I guess, versus so, sales? Yeah, I thought this was interesting because Billboard differentiated their album sales and albums that were being played on the radio by disc jockeys. So this this is literally scanning all the radio stations in America. What were they playing? And even though Elvis was at number three with his first album, you'll notice he's not in the top five for um, you know being played on the radio. So as big as he was, and he was getting bigger, Radio was still kind of resisting. If you look at what they were playing on the radio in 1956, it's very safe. Um, number five is Harry Belafonte's Calypso album, which was actually number one on the sales albums. Number four, the soundtrack to High Society, which features uh, Frank Sinatra being Crosby. Number three, Percy Faith. Oh, Percy. <laughs> With the instrumental My Fair Lady. 
Number two is the original cast of My Fair Lady. And number one on the radio was Frank Sinatra. Uh, your, what are your favorite albums? Songs for Swingin' Lovers. Yeah, and that, what, so, a, what a great title too, eh? Oh, it's the best title of all. I mean, it's just one of the best titles. So you can see that radio was still not catching up to the, you know, rock and roll was coming, R&B. They were still playing it very safe with the soundtracks and the, and the, and listen, I love Sinatra, so I don't play Sinatra all you want, but uh, it was an interesting chart. So I thought that was just kind of cool to see that Elvis was selling records, but wasn't being played that much yet, yet. Yeah, exactly. Yet being the operative word. Now we're going to fast forward on our, day in the life of august 22nd and we're going to go to 1962 and another important first but this time for the beatles and we're going to be talking about a place that you got to visit the cavern club so we will be back in a moment with some beatles talk So, Tony, interesting fact. For years and years and years, I was under the impression that the Cavern Club, the original Cavern Club, no longer existed, and that the Cavern Club that is in Liverpool now was across the street from the original one. This is what I was told. This is what I've read in books. Not true, according to every tour guide and the official statement from the government of Liverpool, the city council. I was at the actual Cavern Club. Now, what happened was... The Cavern Club was demolished to be used as an air shaft for the British Rail. When it wasn't needed, they filled it in. But then, in the 80s, they actually excavated it. And they found all the original. The only thing that's not original in there is the stage and some of the bricks. But everything else is exactly as the Cavern was. So we're, we're going to talk about the Cavern because the Beatles were filmed there, the state, in 1962 performing a couple of songs, uh, Some Other Guy and Kansas City. And to be in the cavern, and I'm telling you, Tony, when I tell you it's small, <laughs> it's small and hot. And I was there, they had air conditioning, and it still felt hot. But um, they have all-day performances. So I saw a gentleman from Liverpool and a guy from, uh, from Belfast. And they perform. And then at nighttime, they bring in bands. But... Um, it was an incredible place to be. And I got to be honest with you, goosebumps being down in the cavern. Goosebumps. Well, yeah, no doubt. But you know, when you're saying it's hot down there, now you listen to the descriptions back when the Beatles were in their heyday at the Cavern Club of how packed it was in there. You know, and you hear descriptions of moisture just dripping off the walls. Yeah. Oh, and, 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 and then wringing out their shirts. I mean... First of all, Matthew Street, um, uh, where the cavern is, is, is literally you could throw a rock and you, you know, it's so tiny. But when we were in there, it was pretty sold out and it was very, like it was pretty packed, I should say. And I can't imagine, but I, I kept picturing this, the lunch hour sessions and, and you see the old film that we're talking about here. Yeah, the walls are just dripping, the beetles are dripping. I mean, it's just, it was, and like people went there for lunch had their sandwich and a beer and go back to work. So on this day, the Beatles were filmed in the, um, for a Manchester TV show, but that footage wasn't actually shown on TV until quite some time later. And I'm going to explain it was filmed for a TV show, but the quality was pretty grainy. So they actually had the Beatles go to Manchester and reshoot, actually perform live on the TV show. They performed love me do and some other guy. 
Love Me Do had just come out of the come out in England, and it was actually at number forty nine on the charts. When it when they finished performing in Manchester, it actually went up to seventeen. So the power of television, right? Yeah. But that clip of them doing some of the guy did make it to TV in November, and um, thank goodness it didn't. Thank goodness they have that piece of history because because can you? I mean, the Beatles stopped playing there when they made it big. So thankfully, there's this one short song of them, and it was only one month after Ringo joined the band. Yeah, and you know I've seen that footage, and it is very grainy. But it, well, what a slice of history! It should be grainy, though, don't you think? Yeah, ab- like, absolutely. I think it it should be grainy, and it 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 um, the cavern's grainy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But you know, it's interesting too, right? Because yeah, Ringo was still cutting his chops with the band and, uh, you know, Ringo was just the missing ingredient really that they needed to, to put them over the top. Now your, um, what are you doing here? I'm watching your, you've got the UK top five. So what's going on in the UK? This is an interesting list here, actually. Well, what's really, I'm going to, it's very interesting because I'm going to tell you a little story with the last song. Number five is Ronnie Carroll. Roses are red. Pilots are blue. Yeah. Number four. Uh, yeah. But we know by Bobby Vinton. Yeah, I was we? just going to say, I remember Bobby Vinton singing that. Yep. Yeah. Number four is The Shadows with Guitar Tango. Number three, Bobby Darren. I love Bobby Darren. Yeah, me too. I really do. Things. Number two. Oh, your favorite. Someone I don't love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Neither does Paul McCartney, so I'm in good company. Number two is. Baboon and Speedy Gonzalez. Now, number one is a song called I Remember You by Frank Ifield. Uh, what's interesting about that song is that the Beatles used to perform it at the Cavern. They're big fans of that song. And, and actually, again, thankfully, we have some documentation. When they played their last night in Hamburg, Germany, one of the the, the waiters recorded the show, actually, recorded the um whole show and what do they promise they feature i remember you so you can if you want to hear the beatles do i remember you you might have to go around digging but it's on the i couldn't find it on spotify um i guess the hamburg tapes have been taken down because of copyright reasons but they did it and they do a good version of it too well i think that's one thing that you know maybe people of this generation forget is how good of a band they were you know just the sheer amount of time they spent on stage these guys really learned to really learn their craft and, and were a great band. It's no, it's no accident that the Beatles shot to fame like that. No, no accident at all. Well, for two years, they played Hamburg, Germany, or 18 months, I guess. And they were doing seven hours a night, seven nights a week. Yeah. You know, you told and, me you're a musician. Can you imagine playing seven hours? Oh, no, it's amazing. And when they weren't playing, you know, I, I remember reading about this, right? They would play their seven hours. They would party. Go to sleep, wake up at noon, rehearse, and then play another. Like that's all they did. Incredible. I, I got to tell you, I tell you a funny story. When when, when you're in Paul McCartney's house, there's a number of photographs, and one of the photographs is the Beatles rehearsing for BBC, their second time on BBC Radio in in Liverpool, and it said that when they performed on BBC Radio, three hours later, they all wore their suits because they felt they should look smart for the radio. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that was the thing, right? So you're right. I mean, these guys played nonstop and when they weren't playing, they were playing other things, you know, 
Well, Party. exactly. Yeah, they, they were terrific musicians. Now, we are going to keep with the Beatles theme here, but we're going to fast forward. And again, this blows me away. You know, I'm just looking six years. Go from 1962, the Beatles are still playing at the Cavern Club, to 1968, the Beatles are the largest act in the world, but, you know, perhaps the largest act anybody's ever seen. And we're going to be talking about Ringo Starr. So shall we take a break and come right back? I think it's a good idea. All right. We'll be back with some chat about Ringo. Aaron, before we start talking about this next story, you know, I was, while we were on our break, I went back and I've been looking at old episodes of the show and it's interesting how over 65 episodes, how this show has changed, hasn't it? Mm -hmm. I was listening to some old ones on Spotify. Yeah. And I mean, the old ones were still great, I think, but the show has really transformed itself. I feel like we've uh, gone much more into a, a radio style format, which I really like actually. I do too. I agree. I agree. It's it's just, I think we're more comfortable. It sounds like we're more, it's much more conversational and deeper. We go a bit deeper too. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, again, I'm just going to shout out to uh, Ellie and Paul, like those, just to know that we've got fans out there who like that. Is... that. That one from Ellie was unbelievable. It made me, it always brought tears to my eyes that she was talking about listening to us while she's touring America. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't, couldn't believe it. And, uh, I mean, you, you just you think to yourself, you do this show, and and you know there's people listening, but you didn't know you have an impact. You know what I mean? Like well, that was exactly. just that blew me away. Yeah, me too. So let's talk about Ringo here, and this is August twenty second, nineteen sixty eight. Tensions are high. The White Album. They're in the middle of the White Album sessions, and a lot of bickering. And Ringo decides to quit the band, and he takes a little hiatus, and. That's what happened. He he walked away for a little while. Now, of course, he came back, but it was a little while that he was gone. He was gone from August 22nd to September 3rd. And what was going on, Aaron? Well, he actually, I mean, it's, it's when he came back, by the way, the Beatles had literally covered his entire drum kit with flowers while coming back. Ringo just felt, I mean, it, it and I, I just want to go back to something you said. This is six years, six years to the day they're playing the Cavern. Now they're recording the White Album. Six years. Yeah. Which, I, can you get your head around that? Because I sure as hell can't. But anyways, he just felt that he, uh, he said he, his drumming, he didn't feel his drumming was very good. And he felt that, you know, he wasn't part of the band anymore. He, he felt that the other three were really happy. And he was the outsider. And he tells a funny story. If, if you've ever watched the anthology series, he tells this great story where... He goes to John and says, listen, you three are really tight, and I feel like the outsider. And John goes, me? I, no, I, no, I thought it was you three. <laughs> and then he goes to George and says, listen, I'm, I feel like I'm the outsider. You three are tight. No, no. No, I'm the outsider. You three are tight. <laughs> <laughs> so he borrows Peter Sellers' yacht and uh, goes to Sardinia. And, and that's where, by the way, he writes the song Octopus's Garden. Yeah, which is a, a staple in the uh, Ringo repertoire, right? So, it, Absolutely, absolutely. And the interesting thing is when we were in Liverpool and we we're crossing the Mersey, they were talking about how the Mersey is very clean now. And just as it empties out, there's octopuses are back. Oh. So I just kept thinking, octopuses garden, man. Anyways, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, it, it, you know, the Beatles are, were human. Oh, by the way, when he left, the Beatles carried on, and that's Paul drumming on back in the USSR. Yeah, <laughs> only human, right? And And the amount of pressure that was on them, just you knew as soon as they became as famous as they were, you just knew, I think yeah, that this was going to be a short lived thing. Really? How can you, well, how can you move on from being that popular and having that kind and, of spotlight on you? And I think it's important to remember that in 68, the oldest Beatle was 28. Yeah. George was still 25. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, Pink Floyd, when they broke up in 84 and they're all in their 50s, we're talking about kids. They're really kids. I mean, George, mm-hmm. 25, is still a kid in my eyes, you know? Yeah, and think about what they did in that short time, the amount of material that they released, the um, the way that they caused popular music to move in an entire new direction, uh, and the way that they affected popular culture as well. I mean, these guys were drivers of popular culture. Yeah, I, I mean, it's only natural. And also, they just lost their manager. Don't forget that. When Brian Epstein died, I think that that... Um, because we've talked about the fact that they needed an Epstein and they needed a George Martin. I mean, if it, it, it was the six. That was the combination that was important, right? Ringo may have been the last part that needed for the puzzle, but they really needed and and um, an Epstein and a Martin to kind of keep them focused i guess you could say or yeah that's true yeah yeah when when brian died i think you're right you started to see the band go off the rails a little bit right yeah yeah and maybe in 2011 or 2022 or whatever year they may have just broken up for temporarily and gotten back together like you know coldplay does or u2 or yeah but this was it was a different time and and um but ringo came back um but this makes him technically the first beetle to walk out and by the way tony i saw his first house in oh. liverpool it's about the size of my body <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so small because you sent me a you sent me a picture of george's house and it was the same thing yeah well did you see the doorway i, yeah. I could i'd have to yeah i would i couldn't fit through um <laughs> ringo i couldn't get a picture of ringo's house because it's it, these places are still residential and the, the the community was saying, you know, no, no stopping, no stopping. You know, you got to keep on going. Um, but um, yeah, it's it's tiny, very the humble beginnings these guys came from. It's hard to believe. Well, maybe it's not, but it's just unbelievable that they did what they did. So yeah, so poor Ringo left the band for a couple of weeks. Yeah, and like you said, he was the first member to to leave, and then I think well basically each of them in turn had had contemplated and and did at at various points later on now what did you pick for uh the charts here well because we're in england i was gonna pick i was gonna try to find some charts from sardinia um (laughs) no so no no go uk top five albums just what were the what were the british listening to in england at the time yeah and this is an interesting list isn't it look at look at what's (laughs) on here i mean compare that to six years ago sorry to interrupt you there I'm, no, it's fine. I'm missing Slim Whitman, though. <laughs> <laughs> Number five, Herb Albert and the Best of the Brass. Number four, The Doors, Waiting for the Sun. I have to ask, are you a Doors fan? I'm not. Okay. Are this you, is why are we're you? friends. Yeah, no. I, I figured you weren't either. No, I'm, I'm not a big Doors guy. <laughs> ne- I never was either. I, I, I know there were a lot of bandwagon Doors fans when the movie came out, but just never did it for me. No, nor me. And I don't, I'm not, I'm not saying the music's bad. It's just not my cup of tea. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> this is the way we get along. Number three, Aretha Now by Aretha Franklin. Great album. Mm-hmm. Number two, The Rascals and Timepiece or Greatest Hits. And number one, Cream, Wheels of Fire. Oh, what a uh, list. Yeah. Crazy, eh? Crazy, crazy. And now, you know what? We're going to wrap up our Day in the Life episode. We're going to go back to a story that ties in pretty closely to Elvis Presley. I mean, it ties into a lot of other artists as well. But we're going yeah. we're gonna to jump ahead to 2011. And we're going to be talking about one of the songwriting team who produced some of Elvis's biggest hits. So we'll be back in a moment. So here we are, it's 2011, and what a loss this was for the songwriting world. Uh, Jerry Lieber of the songwriting team of Lieber and Stoller uh, passed away at his home in Los Angeles. He was 78 years old, and he had cardiopulmonary failure. But with Mike Stoller, he wrote so many hits, including, well, like Elvis's, half of Elvis's catalog, right? Yeah. Um, Hound Dog jailhouse rock king creole uh then he wrote some other ones for some other i didn't realize by the way i just i didn't realize that he wrote stand by me incredible eh? or or kansas city yeah you know these are songs that um what a what a catalog these guys had and uh they were songwriting since 1950 but they wrote for elvis and uh you know, I've I've ranted before on this show about the people who say that Elvis appropriated Hound Dog, but those people are probably unaware that two white Jewish guys wrote Hound Dog, <laughs> you know, gave it to Big Mama Thornton to record, and she did a fantastic, uh, fantastic version of it. But, um, you know, Elvis Presley was well within his rights to record that song as well, and and also did an outstanding job on it but what a back catalog these guys have oh i know and and you know you think about they they started off both in los angeles they both went to the same high school but uh very quickly they moved to to new york and they became part of the brill building in the 50s the very famed brill building where they wrote for everybody and anybody I think they probably, along with Carol King and um, I forgot who she wrote with, but Carol oh, King and Jerry these Goffin. guys, yeah, Jerry Goffin, yeah. King and Goffin. I think King and Goffin and these two are the, probably the most successful of the whole um, the Brill Building. And you you look at you know Lieber, who was a fan of of rhythm and blues, and he would write for a lot of artists. Like he wrote Yakety Yak, Don't Talk Back, great yeah. song, right? Searching, Beatles did Searching. That was one of their favorite songs to do. There yeah. goes my baby. And, you know, these guys, I mean, obviously we know the role that Elvis Presley played in helping destroy that color barrier, but you've got to also give credit to people like this, you know, uh, Lieber and Stoller, who are writing songs like Hound Dog for black artists, right? They were big well, fans, big fans. Big fans. And and again, they, they, they tapped into the sound and the feel and the vibe. And, you know, it's sad to talk about someone passing, but this is more of a celebration. This guy and his partner wrote songs that are kind of like the Beethoven of the day, right? These songs are going to last forever. You know, it's not like you have to worry about someone not knowing. You go to a kid, they know Hound Dog. They know, you know, Stand By Me because of Disney using Stand By Me and um, Lion King, things like that. 
these songs last and last and last because they're good. They're good, solid songs. You know, and in fact, I'm going to segue into your chart here. Speaking of good and solid songs, you're, you've got the uh, top five hits that Lieber co-wrote. And what a list. I love every single one of these songs, actually. And and the first three are by black artists. Yep, exactly. So let's, uh, let's run this down. Okay. I mean, I, I the Drifters are one of my all-time favorite bands. Yes. And, um, you know, Under the Boardwalk. You know, that could have been, but this is top five according to sales. So number five is the drifters on Broadway. Oh, I love that song. How, what's not to love, right? Yeah. It's just brilliant. Wilbert, Wilbert Harrison is at number four with Kansas city. Now, of course the Beatles did Kansas city on their fourth album and they incorporated another song called Hey, 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 Hey. But you know, I always thought Kansas city was written in the 1800s because <laughs> <You know>, <laughs> it's, you know, because it's such a standard number three. Ben E. King, Stand By Me. Yeah. What one more can I say? That's yep. just a, number two, Elvis Presley with Joe House Rock. And number one, you say it. Elvis Presley with Hound Dog. What a list. Yep. What a list. I tell you. Yeah. So this guy, I mean, just 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 like in those five songs alone. But if you say you know, and then you mentioned Yakety Yak and Search and there goes my baby and oh my King goodness. Creole and just Poison Ivy. Wow. Wow. Yeah, incredible list. And yeah. you know what? We've come to the end of the road trip here, but how fun was this today? Man, I, I really missed it as well. Oh, I, it felt so good to be back and driving with you and talking music and and looking at the sights. No, I, you know what, Tony? I tell you right now, I cannot wait for us to do our road trip to Detroit to see the Motown Museum, which yeah. you're going to love. Yeah, I, I am with bated breath. I cannot wait to go down there and see that. Yeah, me too. So yeah, it's good to be back. And and what what where did the time go? We just started, didn't we? Oh, exactly. So, <laughs> folks, let's uh, let's do our usual thing and give credit where credit is due. Uh, first of all, my pal Rick Denis uh, wrote all the music that you heard on today's show. So thank you, Rick. And we have to thank you, the fans, for sticking around with us and indulging us for sixty-five episodes now. And uh, hopefully we've got 65 more or even more in the works for you. But uh, it means a lot. And so, Aaron, when the man is getting you down, what do you do? I guess you just keep on rocking because that's basically it, man. See you later, folks. <laughs>